the trap cast everyone i'm super sorry it's taken me so long to get back to these i've really enjoyed learning to do a solo cast but in some ways even though i do a little less research on these episodes they take longer because i don't have anyone to go back and forth with and it's kind of a struggle to get the recording down the way i kind of like them and i'm still a little unhappy with everything but it's all work in progress right and i do hope that the solo dynamic is working for everyone here despite it also being sort of a learning process for me and you having to listen to the learning process i mean that's essentially part of the reason why I keep it so much shorter than the Made for TV Mayhem show. I don't want you to have to listen to me drone on and on, even though I am talking about one of the best shows on TV ever. So um, anyway, one of the other reasons that it's taken a while is that my old computer died on me. I was finally able to get a new one, but because it's so new, um, it didn't accept my old software programs. And so I'm learning new things on here and it's been a little frustrating. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing and I'm flying blind. So please um, forgive me. Just a caveat, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and um, if you're listening to this somewhere in the future, uh, yeah, so it's been crazy times. It's been really busy around the house and mostly not great ways, as I think a lot of people are dealing with different things during this time. But one of the things I did for myself that I'm so glad I did is the day before we went into lockdown here in Austin, um, I adopted two little baby rats and they're adorable and I'm only bringing them up now besides the fact that you should just love them because they're so cute even though you can't see them is that they're here on my desk I have a very large desk and they sit sort of have this really beautiful four-story cage they sleep during the day but they also like to get up and wrestle and stuff so you may hear some rustling in the background I'm not going to spend a lot of time editing those sounds unless they get really bad so if you hear some kind of noise in the background that's probably what's happening but they're sweethearts and you would love them so much and if you saw them wrestle your little heart would melt Anyway, let me move on. In the time that I've been away, I've been watching random episodes of Trapper John, mostly from the first season, trying to kind of get a feel for what's going to change or what's changing now and what might be coming um, or things that I think they're beginning to emphasize. So, of course, the series is still finding its feet. But I think based on what I've already covered in the last couple episodes, we're really starting to settle into that sort of medical center vibe that I talked about in the pilot episode. You're not seeing a whole lot of attachment to MASH anymore. And for me, that's fine. Um, But I was curious to know how people reacted to it when they originally saw it, because it is such a kind of a diverse movement away from MASH. I couldn't think of the words I wanted to use, so please forgive me. So it doesn't, essentially it doesn't feel like a MASH spinoff at all, does it? 
but I was actually having a hard time finding those, you know, quote unquote, letters to the editor uh, about the show. So I pulled up some more uh, things that critics had to say that I found in my newspaper archive search. Deb Peterson of the Greenville News wrote, but the series' strongest recommendation is its star, the versatile Roberts. He's a highly sensitive actor, equally at ease in heavily dramatic and nonsensically comic moments of Trapper John. He has been missed in the long years since a disagreement with the producers of Bonanza, which resulted in his early exodus from the Western. It will be a pleasure to see him again on a regular basis. Victoria Lee Biggers of Florida Today commented, but I object to the implied connection with MASH. Not in the writing, nor the plotting, not even in the acting. There is a similarity between the two shows, but this is simply an updated Dr. Kildare, with Robert stepping into the role that was filled so well on TV by Raymond Massey when Richard Chamberlain was Dr. Kildare. If you have not watched Trapper John and enjoy medical drama, turn to CBS. There will be none of the caustic wit and multidimensional meaning so important to MASH, but there will be a fine opportunity to see Pernell Roberts show his talents in his first series since 1965. That's what we call a backhanded compliment, dear listeners. Robert Bowden of the Tampa Bay Times was not impressed, and this is, a, this is not a backhanded compliment. This is just an insult, but he wrote, Sometimes it's almost painful to be a television critic. One of those times was when I sat through the hour pilot of Trapper John MD in Los Angeles this summer. I wanted to turn the show off, but I was in a room filled with CBS executives and other critics. I also wanted to get up and leave, and several critics have done just that when confronted with Aussie shows, but I kept thinking, this thing will get better. It didn't, and I watched to the bitter end. I think maybe Bowden might be just bitter in general. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with it. But that's what he thought at the time that it aired. And I'm sure a lot of people were kind of thrown off by the fact that it wasn't really like MASH at all. And so in the pilot episode that I did on the pilot, I think the reviews were just as mixed. Uh, But these were just a few of the articles I stumbled upon when going through some newspaper archives, as I said earlier. So I think it's great to see the show got a lot of coverage and does have actual documentation. Because if you listen to the larger show, the Made for TV Mayhem show, you may notice that that's not generally the case with TV movies. Um, it's Sometimes I have to really dig deep and I can't always get a lot of information about the movies, um, the production of the movies themselves, which is really frustrating for me. So I'm really happy with this. And you know what? In showbiz, we call this filler. Um, so let's get to the meat and potatoes of the trap cast. I will tell you we're definitely hitting a pattern here with these recordings. Again, I'm featuring an unsubstantial Trapper John episode and one that I thought was a lot more significant. Um, But I also caught a little deviation in the structure of the um, first episode I'm covering, so let's just get into it. first episode I'm discussing today is episode 6. It is titled, What Are Friends For? It originally aired on November 11th, 1979. This is a very Gonzo-centric entry, um, and it features a wonderful guest actor uh, that I really like named Richard Gillian. Gilliland. I've never said his name out loud, so if he's listening, I'm sorry. I probably just butchered that. He's a super familiar face, though. Um, he's a wonderful character actor, somebody that I think 
could have possibly been a leading man. He's certainly handsome enough, and he's definitely talented. And he did uh, star in a couple of TV shows. You may know him from Operation Petticoat or Just My Luck. Um, and I know those are deep dives, but I did watch both, and I did love both. But he kind of settled into this sort of uh, one-off character, actor, in a lot of different roles all over the place. And in real life, he is married to the endlessly fabulous Jean Smart, and he appeared on several episodes of Designing Women, actually, as J.D. Shackelford. You may remember him because his character dated Annie Potts' character, Mary Jo Shively. Um, and so hopefully that will give you a visual of who I'm talking about here. Although I'm not going to concentrate a lot on uh, Richard. I'm not going to try to say his last name again um, so much on this, uh, but there's another actor I will briefly talk about in this episode. So let's just start talking about the plot. So in this episode of Trapper John, Richard is Danny Mercer, a pretty likable small-time con, I'm using that term lightly, who works at a large department store. He's having some trouble with his boss and quote-unquote takes a tumble down an escalator which lands him at Trapp's Hospital. He mentions that he knows Gonzo from their Vietnam days together and the two are reunited in the hospital. Danny? Hey, there he is, the jolly green giant, huh? <laughs> hey, man, it's hey, great to see you. Same oh. here, man. <laughs> I... So, how's it going, Gonzo? It's great, it's just great, but what about you? What are you doing in here? It's pretty dumb, huh? After all these years, this is some way to run a reunion. Well, what happened, Danny? Ah, can you believe it? I go through Nam with not much more than a heat rash, and here I about kill myself falling down an escalator. Well, according to your chart, nothing's broken. I hope not. You know, I, I get this I, kind of a jolt every time I twist or turn. I'm sure it's no big deal. Yeah, well, we'll check it out. <laughs> hey. We find out that Danny's now married to a woman named Joan, played by Roxanne Gregory, and the two are seemingly very happy and in the process of adopting a kid named Ricky played by Jason Hervey or Hervey I'm not quite sure of the Wonder Years I'm gonna butcher everyone's name in this I think so anyway because Danny has a hard time holding down a job the adoption process is getting really tricky and now that he's injured it's beginning to look less and less likely that they will be able to adopt Ricky if he can't get a job and maintain it so Danny is hoping that his old friend Gonzo will fake the test results of his back injury so he can collect some insurance money from the job that he fell down the escalator on at the department store this puts Gonzo at a crossroads because he does have a pretty strong moral compass and it's kind of insinuated that Danny, because Danny has actually saved Gonzo during an incident in Vietnam, that Gonzo kind of owes him a favor. And I say insinuated, but I think that Danny actually says, dude, you owe me a favor. Um, so, I mean, he's just basically begging him for help at this point. He's feeling kind of desperate. Hey, how you doing? Hey man, that pill you gave me was magic. It's like some kind of miracle. No pain? No, no, not even a twinge. You know, a guy can get hooked on a painkiller like that. That was no painkiller, Danny. It was a sugar pill. What do you mean a sugar pill? They're called placebos. They're as bony as your backache. What the hell are you trying to pull? I'd like to ask you the same question. There's not a doctor or a test in this hospital that says you are anything but 100% healthy. Well, that's a lie, man. I know how I feel. Why are you doing this, Danny? What? Doing what? I take a bad tumble, make a mess out of my back, and you stand there and try to tell me I'm not hurting? Well, you're wrong, man. Dead wrong. Look, Danny, we've got a lot of history between us, a lot of, uh, 
good things to remember. Now, I want you to pack up your bags and go while we're still ahead. Oh, just like that, huh? That's what I get for pulling you out of the fire. Oh, come on, Danny. Don't you think I'm aware of that? So, like any good medical drama, while examining Danny's fake back injury, Gonzo uncovers a tumor, which may be malignant. Uh, so he has to talk Danny into a surgical procedure that Danny probably doesn't want to have. But wait, Danny has checked himself out of the hospital and he's hiding out somewhere. Can Gonzo fix things for Danny and his family? I think he can. I do. This is a really brisk, breezy, and fun episode. It, it is unsubstantial. It's the one of the two that I think um, is more superficial, but it's got some excellent guest actors, and overall, I think it's a solid episode. It's very watchable, um, but it's also just as forgettable. I mean, I watched this one several times, and it took me a few viewings for me to realize that this episode actually has no B story. And I thought that was such a deviation from the first few episodes. So, you know, gone are Dr. Riverside's antagonistic relationship with the staff and patients. Gone is a reverse psychology, so prevalent in the previous episodes. There's no Brancusi getting angry at a patient, nor is there any backtalk um, from Starch as she classes with Trap. But that's coming soon. We're going to get back to that. I found their decision to dedicate an entire storyline to Gonzo to be really cool. Um, I love Gregory Harrison. He's a great actor. I think he has a lot of presence, and I think he's... Um, just somebody I enjoy watching. I think the character of Gonzo is really interesting. But I think that maybe a Gonzo-rific episode would have fared better in an episode with a little more depth. Um, but as it stands, you know, it's definitely watchable. I think Jason Hervey is a is kind of a bit of a revelation. I think he's really adorable and he's great as Ricky. And, you know, I don't normally gravitate towards little kids on TV shows. Um, that's not really where my heart is when I watch these, but I actually think he stole my heart. And so that says a lot about his performance in this. What's yours? Chocolate. Strawberry is better. No way. Strawberries always get stuck in the end of the straw. I know how to drink them. <laughs> Where'd you learn? My dad taught me he's very big on strawberry sodas. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm real lucky getting adopted by them. They're lucky to have you. When your dad was in the army, he was always talking about having a son like you. Did you guys go through that war together? Mm-hmm. Did he ever tell you how he saved my life? He saved your life? That's right. Well, he never talks much about the war. One of the other things I like about this episode in particular is that while they don't overtly address the war, I like that Vietnam is central to Gonzo's character. I remember in an early episode of the Trapcast, um, I was talking about an article I read where some vets from the war complained that the portrayal of returning soldiers was uh, too often focused on kooky or disturbed characters. Here we've got two guys who are very different from each other, but are also really good guys. Danny is just stuck in a bad situation. Um, you know, he could probably stand up to grow up a little. Uh, he could take some real responsibility for things, but he's not really a bad guy. And when you think about his crime, it's not that severe or violent and in the end the only person Danny is really hurting is himself because he's immature and his immature acts end up creating problems with his home life and with his friends of course with Gonzo. So Roxanne Gregory um, who is really great in the role as Danny's long-suffering but pretty devoted wife she has a pretty short IMDb resume so I did the 
best I could to piece together some of her career. Uh, you know, I didn't come up with much. So let me just tell you a little bit about what I learned about her life in this era. So she came to some note very early on in her career when she landed the part of Cal Latimer on the soap Love of Life in 1976. So just a couple years before this episode aired, she was kind of hitting superstardom at a pretty young age. So a little before she shot this Trapper John, she made her debut as a part of a musical act um, in 1978 with her husband, Don Stewart. Um, now he played Matt Bauer on Guiding Lights, so you may remember him as well. The two had already toured together and performed heavily in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and she performed in New York in May of 1978 at a club called Scene One, and then later that year she played in another New York ballroom aptly titled The Ballroom. And in fact, she left Love of Life to pursue music. There wasn't much press on her afterwards though, uh, although I will say she did appear in two TV movies. In 1978, she was in When She Was Bad, which starred Cheryl Ladd as, as an abusive mom. And then Roxanne landed a starring role in the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleader sequel, which was so wonderfully titled Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders 2 in 1980. Sunday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain, all new Guinness excitement. Stuntwoman Kitty O'Neill leaps 175 feet without a parachute. Twelve men walk on a plane. A jump into a pool of poisonous rattlesnakes and more. Then, we're a team. Some are more equal than others. The Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders are back in an all-new movie where the action is hotter off the field and on for the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders too. But her acting career, at least on TV and in movies, uh, really petered out and she disappeared after a role in 1983's Without a Trace. Which is really too bad because she's really good in this episode and it's kind of a thankless role. I think she does a pretty good job with what she's been given. I like too that it's kind of a melodramatic episode, as many of these are. I think using soap actors in these kind of dramas really benefits the show um, because actors are uh, from soaps are really good at sort of handling this type of material better than almost anybody else, right? So I'd say overall this is a pretty good entry. It sort of backs up that sort of feel-good doctor drama structure that was set in episode two. But there's not much else to really say about it. I will say, if you have a chance to check it out, definitely look at it. You're looking at a fine group of actors. You get to see Jason Horvath at the very beginning of his career. And it's enjoyable, you know? But let's hit the second episode because I think that there's a lot more to talk about here. So the second episode I'm covering on this episode of the Trapcast is titled One More for My Baby and it originally aired on November 18th, 1979. Before I get started with a brief breakdown of this episode, I'd like to talk a little uh, bit about universe building on television. This is one of my favorite things. So like a lot of other TV shows that had a core cast of characters, there was always an episode or two that would feature someone the audience had never seen before but whom the characters on the show knew very well. And then, of course, we would never see those characters again. They would come in for one show and be like, oh, remember we went and got beer last week? And then we would forget that they were ever friends after that episode. So keep that in mind, because in One More for My Baby, we've got Elaine, played by the great and wonderful Penny Fuller. She's a widow running a gift shop at the hospital. Uh, she's always a little overworked and stressed, and so she kind of leans on her young teenage son named Billy, played by Patrick Laborto. Um, I hope I said that right, because I'm butchering everybody's name here. Um, and I'm, don't ask me to pronounce it again, because I'm not going to be able to. Anyway, he's one of those all-American kids. First of all, his name's Billy. That's your first clue. He's captain of the football team. He's popular. He has a terrific relationship with his mom, and the whole thing is very sweet. But she's been having some health issues, so he makes her visit Trap and the gang for an exam. It turns out she has some sort of tumor that needs to be examined and removed. 
So Billy offers to help keep the shop running, but Elaine is actually more worried about her son staying home alone, right? As you would. So Gonzo basically volunteers Trap to be Billy's guardian, much to Trap's chagrin, but he accepts it and he takes Billy in. Elaine, I I want you to check into the hospital tomorrow at 9 a.m. so that we can begin your preliminary tests. Tomorrow? I can't do it tomorrow. I've got too many things I've got to do. Mom, don't worry about it. I'll handle things. I'll make sure the house is kept clean. I'll bring you the mail. I'll even check up on the gift shop. See, he's taking care of everything. No, he hasn't. Where are you going to stay? Home. At home? Alone? No, you're not. Mom, you keep telling me I'm not a kid anymore. He can stay with me. Oh, no way, Casanova. Don't think I don't know what goes on in the Titanic. All right, then he can stay with Trevor. Me? Well, sure, it's perfect. He's got an extra room and everything, and that way you'll know that Billy's in good hands. Well, the last thing you need is a kid around your neck. No, it'll be fun, right, Trevor? Uh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Fun. Then we accept. Thanks. (sighs) And these little things begin to happen. They look pretty obvious to us in the audience, but because Billy is considered this really all-American kid, they look odd to Trapper and Gonzo. Whoa. Sorry. I guess I should have stayed in my turn lane. <laughs> no, it was my fault, Doc. I wasn't paying any attention. It's pretty potent stuff you got there. Yeah. Pure grain alcohol. It's a bad year. The guy in the lab gave it to me for a science project at school. Well, I guess we better get you some more. Uh, no. Uh, it's okay. Um, my mom is waiting for me, and I better get going. I'll come back later. Billy is first caught with some sort of cheap grain alcohol on him, which he says is part of a science experiment at school. Then he stumbles into the hospital drunk. When the doctors go to visit the football team that Billy's supposed to be on, We find out that Billy's been lying about a lot of things. Um, The coach doesn't even recognize his name. And we find out that he's this kind of kid that's sort of fallen by the wayside. And he's turned to alcohol to relieve some of the pressure he's feeling at home. Meanwhile, Elaine actually finds out that she does have cancer. And it's horrible. Because now she's got an alcoholic teenage son on her hands. And there's no other parent to help her out. So... In the mid-70s, teenage alcoholism was sort of a new thing, meaning that professionals believed that teens could not be true alcoholics because it supposedly took years for the disease to develop. I think that's what makes this episode so interesting and so fascinating because they're catching something right at the beginning of it happening. It's a real cultural artifact for me. But the influences of the home are sometimes canceled out by the influence of friends and new and very unhome-like experiences. Man, do you want a real drink instead of that silly kid stuff? Nah, I don't think so. Come on, take some. It won't kill you. Uh, I just don't like the taste. Hey, man, nobody drinks because of the taste. The effect that counts. Well, why should I drink? Why not? We all drink. What's wrong with us? Yes, drinking is a very typical part of the teen scene. Your parents may be surprised and even shocked by that, but if you're a teenager, you know that teenagers drink. And a good reason for teenage drinking can be found right here, in this room, when there was another party going on. So I did a little research, and I found that the teen alcoholism is tied to so much stuff, and you can imagine it being part of the 70s and things that were happening then. So I saw this article that appeared in um, a Mansfield, Ohio newspaper in 1976, and it was saying that many parents weren't around as much, whether it be the rise in divorces, both parents working, or with the case of someone that was called Linda T in the article, 
Uh, her parents were always out partying. So she'd dip into their stash that they kept at home, which was hefty enough that they didn't even notice when alcohol went missing. And of course, we had the rise in the drug culture among teens, which also, I think, led to more casual drinking. Because in 1976, it was such a new phenomenon, there were no real hard studies at this point on what they, I guess you would call true teen alcoholism. But experts speculated that about 12% of teenagers were at risk to develop into an alcoholic, and that approximately 6% of teens were probably already really heavy drinkers. And that's kind of a staggering number when you consider that the adult alcoholism of the 70s affected about 4 to 5% of the general population, which meant that there were more teen alcoholics percentage-wise than there were adults, which kind of blows my mind when you think about it. Which probably brings me to what we're all thinking about, right? Sarah T., Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, aired in 1975, and it really capitalized on this sort of new burgeoning issue we were all dealing with. It was an enormous success in terms of audience reach, which I think means we were all kind of interested in this subject and maybe beginning to experience it as a reality. It was the highest rated made-for-TV movie of the 1975-76 season, and I think it takes a pretty decent stark look at what leads to teen alcoholism. And if you haven't seen it, I will say it's on Blu-ray thanks to Shout Factory, and if that's not enough, it also freaking stars Linda Blair and Larry Hagman and Mark Hamill, so you know, yeah, see it. And there's been a few other teen alcohol projects. Uh, you may also be thinking about The Boy Who Drank Too Much with Scott Baio from 1980, or even when Rob Stone's character battled alcoholism on Mr. Belvedere. But Trapper John tackled this really early on, and I appreciated that the series allowed the characters to be in what is probably the worst case scenario for them to be in. So as you can see, this is ripe for Trapper John, right? So I wouldn't call this a message episode, although arguably every episode is sort of a message episode, isn't it? Uh, but I do think that they are attempting something really brave here. Um, so for one, Elaine is really sick. Uh, it's not like she gets a scare, which then exposes Billy's drinking problem, but ultimately she's healthy and can handle the situation. Mm -mm, no, that's not what happens. It's just the opposite. Her life, and by extension, Billy's life, goes totally haywire, and she's expected to handle both her own bad health and her son's disease as well. So I think that there's this really great moment towards the end where Elaine just sort of flatly states that there's no choice for her. She simply has to put Billy first. It's her son, right? And we all can see that as the audience as being noble and right, but it had me thinking about the reality of the situation which is that a single mother dealing with cancer might not have the capacity to actually help her own son. So I think while the episode takes the responsible road that I guess every parent really should take, I do think the writing does allow the viewer to see the incredible difficulties that face Elaine and Billy. And then of course we never see them again. So all I'm gonna say is Billy or Elaine, if you're out there and listening, call me. I just wanna know that you're okay, guys. The B story is really, really fun. Um, it features good old Dr. Riverside as the mentor and instructor to a bunch of new interns at the hospital. He ends up with sort of a young, obnoxious mirror version of himself, and of course, he hates him. That intern is named Addison Wesley Holmes III, and he's played wonderfully by Mark Withers, doing a pretty good impression of Riverside, or what Riverside probably looks like to other people, but not how Riverside sees himself, obviously. Actually, medicine wasn't my first choice. You see, when I graduated from school, I excelled in so many things that I didn't quite know what to do. I presume you ruled out missionary work. You see, Father first bought me an art gallery. 
And then I tried raising thoroughbred horses. Such filthy animals. Thoroughbred horses? No, the artists. So this character, he's privileged, he's pompous, and he's hysterical. He's just laugh out loud funny to me. He actually configures into the story about Billy and Elaine too, though, because he's responsible for getting Billy arrested for being on hospital premises while drunk. Where'd you put Billy Tabor? Who? Tabor, the kid the police just brought in. Oh, I sent him on down to the police station. You what? Well, he was drunk. All he needed to do was sleep it off. I saw no reason to waste a perfectly good hospital bed on a drunken delinquent. He's a 14-year-old kid. I don't care if he's four. Spots of a leopard don't change. Listen, buddy, I don't know how you got this far, but you're... Dr. Gates! I'll handle this. Listen to me, Holmes. You've been skating on thin ice for some time now. You're arrogant, conceited, pompous, incompetent, totally lacking in compassion, motivated by nothing but your money-grubbing little greed. If you ever pull another stunt like that, I shall personally see to it that you never work in any hospital again. Not even as a candy striper. And I think this was sort of important, the crossover here, in maintaining that belief I have that the writers have set out to make Riverside more likable. You know, Riverside is super offended that Addison would do such a callous thing to this kid who was clearly in a crisis. And also, I think we all know Dr. Riverside is just a big old teddy bear. I mean, he is, right? He totally is. So maybe we're starting to fall in love with him a little? I don't know. You can tell me. I know I am. But that's just me. And um, I am already in love with him, let's face it. But anyway, because this is a pretty light side story, I think it alleviates some of the darkness of Billy and Elaine's issues that we're dealing with for the bulk of the episode. And there you go. We're at the end of another episode of the Trapcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. I had a really good time watching these. And while I'm way behind on making this more of a consistent project, watching Trapper John has been a great comfort to me um, during these days of the pandemic. Uh, I think it's nice to see a show full of people who care about each other and strangers. And maybe it's not faith restoring, but I think it definitely provides a little light into my 2020, which has been sorely missed. And I hope that you're watching along and you're getting these same kind of warm feelings from the show that I am because it's become really important to me. And um, thank you so much for listening. But before I go, here's a funny trap fact that I stumbled upon when doing my research. Did you know that Pernell Roberts went bald at a very young age and wore a toupee on Bonanza? He did. He looks so good on Bonanza. He's just ridiculously handsome. Also handsome as the older uh, Trapper. I love him very much. And if you'd like to get in touch with the show, please email me at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Made for TV Mayhem or at TV Mayhem Podcast. Those are both my Twitter handles. Or you can just look for me on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem show or on Instagram at Made for TV Mayhem. And thank you guys. And hopefully I'll be back sooner than later. Thank you.